0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the first three chapters of Revelation, which we've titled Ears to Hear Specifically this morning, we're going to be studying uh, the first of the seven letters that we find at the beginning of Revelation, uh, which were dictated by Jesus and written down by the Apostle John, as we learned last week. Uh, And these letters were written to to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, And these letters call the churches back into the way of Christ through both encouragement and rebuke as we anticipate Jesus coming again. Uh, so they're going to be intense. They're going to be hard hitting. They're going to be convicting, but they're going to be really good for us. Um, and so let's have ears to hear as we, as we dig into this. And speaking of hearing, has anyone ever heard the expression, do what you love, and you'll never have to work a day in your life? Anyone, anyone heard that? Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that message or something like it, like find your hobby and make it your job. The, the, those expressions, they're really popular right now in memes and stuff. Uh, and it sounds so right, doesn't it? So positive and, and uplifting to find what you're passionate about and then make it your career. That's the dream. Or is it? Right? You know, first of all, who's going to clean the toilets then? Who's going to do the plumbing? right? No one dreams about that. But second of all, um, some career advisors are actually changing their tune when it comes to this expression and are now saying that it's not always good advice. Sometimes it can be, but it's not always good advice. Many advisors and even people who have, have tried this career path are now suggesting that people should, should keep their passions set apart from their work and that it's better instead to find a good paying job that can pay the bills and then fund your passions, or at least to find a job with good hours so that you can have time in your week to pursue what you love. Simply because what tends to happen, and and not always, again, there there are exceptions to the rule, but usually is that when you make your passion your job, it actually ceases to be your passion after a while. Right? Over time, with the mounting pressures and stresses to make money, to, to be successful, to impress your boss and remain competitive with others in the field, to meet deadlines and so on and so forth, what, what happens is that your original love and your joy for that thing can start to dwindle until it actually just starts to become a chore or a burden. Right? When you lose that love for, for the thing you're doing, it becomes a chore or a burden. Right? And basically, it becomes like any other work, just something you have to do or are expected to do to pay the bills, support your family, so it's something you rarely do after hours anymore because the, the fun has been sapped out of it. So over time, one can completely forget the passion or lose that loving feeling they had when they first started. And spiritually speaking... This, this is what has happened to the recipients of the first letter we find in Revelation, the, the church in Ephesus. They've become so busy with, with doing the right things and, and thinking the right things and, and working and doing that they've completely lost the passion or reason that they were doing those things in the first place. They, they've become so engrossed and dedicated to the Lord's work and to His doctrine, which, which are good things, but they've become so engrossed and focused on those things that they've forgotten about the Lord, or as it says, they've abandoned their first love. And I believe that this is something we can all relate to on, on some level with our faith and with our relationship with Christ and as the church. And so as we turn to the passage now, my, my request is the same as last week, that we would approach this text with honesty, with humility, and with hearts ready to be challenged and changed that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to us this morning. So please turn with me now to Revelation 2, 1-7. Revelation 2, 1-7. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Alright, so, I, I grew up going to a church, which um, is incredibly healthy now, but when I was growing up, this church um, wasn't very much so. But let me explain. It had incredibly solid doctrine. It had... Bible studies, weekly Bible studies. It had very upstanding morals. It also had an incredibly solid and committed attendance with no shortage of people always ready and, and willing to volunteer in church or in Sunday school or boys' clubs or girls' clubs or to lead something like a short service on a Sunday afternoon for elderly folks at a retirement home. Right? My memory of that church was that there was always some, some event or some service going on. It, it, it was always busy. But yet, even in the midst of, of the busyness and, and whatnot, sometimes it, it felt more like a stuffy social club or, or something people did more out of a desire for religious tradition or cultural family duty. On, on paper and on the surface, they look like a successful church doing good works, resisting false doctrine, enduring in their faith, refusing to practice evil or let the culture influence them. All good things that, that Jesus actually also commends the church and Ephesus for, as, as we just read. But, but yet, it often seemed, and this could have just been my perception, right? But, but it often seemed lacking in, in genuine love. Like, like people were more interested in keeping tradition alive than building up the body of Christ. And, and my suspicions were usually confirmed whenever someone in the church would publicly express a a different opinion about some secondary issue in the Bible, or when someone, especially so, when someone would try to change something in the church, right? Someone was like, hey, let's put the library in this room. Uh Uh-oh. No. Right? (laughs) It was in those moments when arguments ensued and, and things got nasty, when people's true hearts and motivations for being involved in church went on, went on full display. Right? When someone's stubbornness for church tradition became more important than treating other people with respect. Their obsession with doing things right and, and their stubbornness in being right, even if they were wrong sometimes, mind you, was often more important to them than being loving or building up the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul speaks to this problem in 1 Corinthians 13 too. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And this is the problem that Jesus has against the church in Ephesus at this time as well. It seems they've, they've got all the knowledge and they're, they're demonstrating all the faith But they've abandoned the love. About them, Pastor Greg Morse writes They had a zeal for orthodoxy, which is like doctrine, right? Beliefs, right? They had a zeal for orthodoxy, but they had lost their love for Jesus. They showed up for Bible studies and debated the heretics, but lost their pure love for their Lord. They stood against evil in their midst, but tolerated a sluggish love towards Jesus and each other. They they privately were abandoning Christ in their public crusade for truth about Christ. They were exchanging Christ himself for theological images of their Savior. Of course, this church in Ephesus, which was planted by Paul, the Apostle Paul, about 25 years earlier, actually they actually needed to be solid and immovable in both their beliefs and in their practice d- due to the city and, and its influential culture in which they lived. So we're going to get a little bit of context here um, as to how, d- how they got to where they were. So, so here, here around this time, the city of Ephesus had just been the first city to be given the title of Neochorus by a man named Domitian, who was the current Roman emperor at the time. And we, we all know what a Neochorus is, right? Uh, no? Okay. I didn't either until this week, okay? Uh, <laughs> so, here, here's what it means. A, neo, a neocorate, or, and then, you know, whatever. It's called a neochorus, neocorate, whatever. A neocorate was a rank or dignity granted by the Roman Senate and the emperor under the empire to certain cities which had built temples to the emperor or had established cults of members of the imperial family. Basically, then, the city itself was a designated uh, cult or place of worship unto the emperor and to former emperors of Rome. So they, they worship them like, like gods. So already we can see how much political and religious pressure mixed with fear of death and persecution from Domitian and, and his Romans would be on the Christians in that city, right? It's, it's almost as intense as, as the Jews having to worship Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, So so this this pressure to, to conform to the political and worship practices of their culture was also compounded by the fact that Ephesus had long been the place of worship for the goddess Diana, also named Artemis, depending on if you were Roman or Greek, respectively. And within her temple, there were hundreds of priestesses serving the goddess. And I'll let the adults in the room guess what kind of worship services they offered to both men and women as practices and acts of worship to this maiden goddess of fertility and nature. Don't dwell on it too long. Finally, at, at, that, at the time as well, Ephesus was also the second biggest city in the Roman Empire, and its location as a port city made it one of the most important economic cities for trade and control. And kind of side note here, this prime location as being a port city is also why Ephesus actually became one of the central cities and headquarters for Christianity at the time, making it even more important for them to not stray in their theology and practice because they had so many smaller Christian communities dependent upon them. But in the midst of such a religious and politically charged culture filled with greed and and debauchery, it makes sense that the church in Ephesus constantly had to put up their guard Right? to put up their guard against false prophets, to put up their guard against false teaching, to put up their guard against compromising their orthopraxy, which is a fancy word for how we, how we practice or live out our faith. So in facing up against all these things, the church in Ephesus definitely had to be extra stubborn, or, or zealous rather, in making sure they were believing the right things, and also practicing the right things, lest, lest they, they stray into being or acting like the Nicolaitans, which Jesus specifically calls out in this letter, as, as a group which he hates. Sometimes it's hard to imagine how, how Jesus can hate something, right? But as you may have read in our reading last week, in our Bible reading, what did, what did he say? Do you guys remember what he said about those who try to lead his followers astray? He says it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around their neck than to face his judgment. Jesus isn't messing around when it comes to protecting his children from being led astray. And while we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, what most historians and theolo- theologians figure is that they were encouraging Christians to take part in the debauchery and eating of food for idols, which means, you know, worshipping at the feet of false gods, such as Diana or the emperors. It's also possible that these Nicolaitans were trying to convince believers that their salvation was secure, and so they, could just, they were allowed to be free to do whatever they wanted to, right, go visit the priestesses, whatever. But Jesus is not impressed with them, though. He is, however, pleased by the church's ability to stand firm and and resist all these temptations and uh, to conform and to to persist in doing the good works that they were called to do instead of taking part in the works of the culture around them. Speaking of which, does anyone know who the pastor of the church of Ephesus was? This is like a pop quiz. I'm asking you so many questions today. Who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus? No. He, He was there at the... At one point, t- Timothy. Who said Timothy? Ding, ding, ding. Timothy was the pastor. And uh, you can read all about Timothy's issues and struggles when, when he first started pastoring this church as a rookie pastor. Uh, if you read through the Apostle Paul's two letters to Timothy, and in those letters we can read that, that Paul helps Timothy with topics like how to resist false doctrine, clarifying how to be generous and who to serve with good works, how to spot and deal with with false teachers, how to appoint leaders, and how to endure and remain strong in the faith. And so it seems that Timothy had done well in, in taking Paul's advice and leading the church to remain solid in these things. And Jesus commends them for it. And we can learn from them here as well. It's a reminder that, that it's important that we know the Bible and that we know what we believe. It's important that we're active and zealous in good works. It's important that we remain steadfast in our faith and and refuse to allow the culture to make us compromise. It's important that we have discernment in regards to who we learn from, especially today with so many uh, pastors and teachers with their websites and social media platforms, right? So it's important we have discernment. So in all these ways, we should be inspired by the Ephesian church, only problem is, they had the biggest problem of all. They seem to have started doing those things for the wrong reasons. Almost as if they became so focused on on making sure they weren't wrong that they forgot the very thing that made them right. Love. And not just any love, the love of Jesus Christ. As we read earlier, again, they could have all the knowledge... All the, all the prophecies, all the faith, which, is, which, you know, on the surface seemed like they did. But yet without love, in the end, there were nothing. Daniel Aiken writes, They were in danger of a legalism that in time would be their death. They were still doing the right things, but sometime in the past they had forsaken the right motivation." They didn't have a head problem but a heart problem. Obedience out of duty had replaced obedience out of love for Christ. The difference between the two is massive. It is the difference between I obey and Jesus accepts me and Jesus accepts me and I gladly obey. And that's what it's supposed to be. Jesus accept, accepts me and I gladly obey. And so Jesus warns them for, the, for their own good that unless they get back to the love that they had at first their lampstand would be removed not out of, out of spite but simply because their lack of love was a demonstration they lacked god how could they how could they function as the body of christ without the love of christ as it says in first john 4:19 to 20 it says we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and then hates his brother he is a liar For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if we're not demonstrating love, that's a demonstration that the love of God is not in us. Last week, we learned that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches being addressed in Revelation. And then at the beginning of this passage, we we, we get to revisit another image uh, present in chapter 1 of Jesus walking and dwelling among those lampstands. Dwelling among the churches. And it's, it's a comforting and, and glorious image knowing that Jesus dwells and walks among us still, and even now. That he's the living Christ. But Ephesus, it seems like Ephesus has been so busy doing things for him and learning about him that they seem to have forgotten to acknowledge him and acknowledge his presence and his love for them. And yes, Jesus calls us into obedience, but more than that, he desires our affection. It matters to Jesus not only what we do, but why we do what we do. Jesus once rebuked the Pharisees in a similar way when he said to them, John 5, 39 to 40, he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then again in Matthew 15:8, which you might also remember from our Bible reading this last week, Jesus says to them, "This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." In other words, they, they know the Bible left, right and upside down, right? They're, they're going through the motions of living obediently, according to the law but they don't actually look to the one in whom it's all about. They know a lot about God and Scripture, but they don't know God. It's kind of hard to wrap our heads around. J.I. Packer writes, I am sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find ourselves a, a deep and intriguing interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history and study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around in the scriptures, acting as teachers and arbiters of orthodoxy in our own Christian circle, all very fine. Yet, interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew. Indeed, if we study His works diligently, we shall. And yet, all the time, we may hardly know God at all. Of course, having knowledge about God and of doctrine without love is not only a sad thing, but we have to recognize it's also a dangerous thing, too. First Corinthians 8, in the second half of verse 1, reminds us that we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, so having knowledge or, or even doing good works without love can actually make us egotistical or, or arrogant. I'm sure we've met people like that, right? It can also make us cold-hearted, impatient, and judgmental. It can cause our faith to become like legalism, where we do works as a sense of duty or pride or self-righteousness, as an attempt to impress God or to show others up. And then when we correct others with this superiority complex of being more, more knowledgeable than everyone else, We might try to justify this correction as as loving, but it usually comes off as, as rude or harsh and meant to shame. And when we disagree with someone, we become smug or offended. And ultimately, without love, being right, no matter how small the issue, becomes more important than treating others with respect and honor. As the late Ravi Zacharias once wrote, truth that is not undergirded by love makes the truth obnoxious. And the possessor of it repulsive. And so I can only imagine how they might have treated one another, or even belittled one another, or how they treated outsiders, especially when they disagreed on something. It's like they'd forgotten what the, the Apostle Paul reminded them, reminded this church 25 years earlier in Ephesians 4:15 to 16. And he said to them, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. They seem to have forgotten their purpose and the power of truth only when it's built on love and building up in love. In fact, it was this love, as it says elsewhere in Ephesians, which had broken down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile within the church of, of Ephesus when it first started. So when they first started, they were building each other up in, in truth and love as the body of Christ. But a lack of love turns our hearts from Christ and from each other. Right? It rebuilds those dividing walls between each other, but, but also in our hearts. And so while, while this message was for the church in Ephesus, I also believe that we're, we're called to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through this today. I, I think we can and should heed the warning given to the church of Ephesus and ask ourselves honestly, have we abandoned our first love? Or even are there, are there areas in our life where we've abandoned that love? Has your faith become mundane? Has your worship become passionless and cold? Has, has doing works become more like a, like a duty or, or a chore? Has the former sweetness of proclaiming Jesus' name become tasteless? Are you serving out of expectation rather than out of a spirit-filled passion for God? Are you just going through the motions of church and wearing a religious mask while on the inside you're struggling? Are you more interested in the things of the world than Christ, or are you more concerned with being right and finding yourself arrogantly correcting others on issues that don't matter than actually building and and loving people? It's it's important that we seriously ask ourselves, especially in this day and age, with Christ's return on the horizon, is it possible that, that I've replaced being the church with attending the church? Have I replaced relationship with, with legalism? Have I replaced arrogance with, 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 and knowledge with being led by the Spirit? Have I replaced knowing Jesus with just knowing doctrine? Have I replaced being and abiding in Christ with busyness and doing? A.W. Tozer writes to all the, the busybodies out there, He says, it is possible that we are so busy in our secular work or even in the Lord's work that we have no time to pray, no time to wait on God, or get still and knit up the raveled sleeve of care, or orient our souls toward God in heaven. When that happens, there is danger. Excessive religious work can ruin men. If you are too busy in the Lord's work to spend time in the Lord's presence, you are too busy in the Lord's work. Have we become so caught up in acting like the church that we've abandoned the very cornerstone of the church? If so, we're going to crumble without that solid foundation. So this this is a, a very serious call For us to return to Christ, into his love for us, and subsequently back into our love for him and others. And again, Jesus isn't pointing out this grievous error to the Ephesian church because he wants them to to feel bad or feel shame or feel afraid. No, he's, he's pointing it out to them because he loves them, and he wants them to come back into his love. As Paul David Tripp writes, the grace that exposes your sin is the same grace that offers you forgiveness. The grace that exposes your weakness is the same grace that offers you strength. The love that confronts your foolishness is the same love that offers you wisdom. And so yes, Jesus exposes our sin, but he only ever does so to rescue us from it before it destroys us. In fact, he says that those who would acknowledge their sin and turn from it, it would be given to them to eat of the tree of life. right? To have eternal life. In the presence of God. And so in giving the, the, the church of Ephesus his diagnosis, he also offers them the remedy. He calls those who would have an ear to hear to remember, repent, and return. Revelation 2, verse 5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So first of all, remember the love you had at first and therefore what you've lost, right? We need to take honest inventory of of how and when this this love started to fade and, and how you've fallen from it. Remember what it was like when that love first found you and, and rescued you in your sin and invited you into communion with God. Remember the joy unspeakable of, of discovering that he could and does love someone like you. Remember the comfort of his grace and mercy, of being aware of his presence. Remember how his spirit lovingly ignited in you a desire for his heart, for his word, and a desire to love others. And even as, as you do this, May it lead you into a place and an attitude of, of repentance for the ways in which you've abandoned or neglected this love. And again, re- repentance isn't, isn't a call for you to feel guilty or, or to live in a place of self-pity. No, re- repentance is an invitation to lay our sin and error and guilt down at the foot of, cro- of the cross. And, and so we can find forgiveness and restoration. And until the last day, Jesus is ready and willing and longing to pour out his grace upon those who would turn to him and repent. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this morning, in your time of need, come before Christ Come before Christ and receive his mercy and grace. Be honest. Tell him. Tell him if you've gone cold in your faith. Tell him if you've entertained other loves or or idols besides him. Tell him if you've become arrogant or or self-righteous in your works. Tell him if you've just been going through the motions. Repent for neglecting him in your, in your busyness or not making his love a priority, for not loving him as he deserves or loving others in the same way. Repent for when you've, you've made knowing about him more important than knowing him. Above all, turn back towards the one who loves you. As it says, return to the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. And what is this work you did at first? John 6:29. Jesus tells us, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Return to Jesus. Return to the cross. Wait on him. Be silent before him. And let his spirit reignite and revive our, your heart to burn for his name and to build up the body of Christ in love. And finally then, as we remember, repent, and return to Him in faith and with ears to hear, we, we can find confidence. Not only in His grace and mercy, but in Jesus' promise to, to restore us to the life He's called us into and the hope of eternal life in the presence and glory of God when He comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for who you are. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice at the cross for us, for rescuing us and redeeming us in our sin, Lord, for inviting us into communion with you, and also uh, to invite us in, into being part of the body of Christ, this church, Lord. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for those here this morning, and I thank you for those watching online. Lord, but I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would, you would give us the humility and the honesty to have ears to hear what you are speaking to us. That as you, as you point out the, the places in our lives and in our hearts where we've abandoned you, where we, we've neglected to acknowledge you and glorify you, Lord. I pray that you would reveal those things in each one of us this morning so that we can lay them down at the cross so that you can restore us back into your love and into, into the life, the abundant life of joy that you've called us to live so that we can be lights so that our lampstand wouldn't be, wouldn't be hidden but that it would be a light for the world to see, Lord, your goodness, your grace, and your love. I pray that for this church, Lord, and and, and for, for every church, Lord, that you would bring revival into our hearts, into our communities, even as you restore us, Lord. Lord, we come to you because you are time of need Lord give you all the glory in Jesus name